morning, Disciples Church. My name is Cole Mosier, and the scripture reading for this morning is John 4, 27 through 42. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to, with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are, wh- are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked, asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Thank you, Cole. And welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you this morning. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege and honor to get to open up the Word of God with you this morning. So if you're not already there, if you could turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. You will need your Bibles this morning. We'll be be looking around at a few different passages, uh, specifically John chapter 4, even some of the verses that we didn't read today, but turn there if you could in your Bibles. It's good to be back with you. Uh, my family was gone on vacation last week. We missed you uh, in our absence, and it's really good to be back with you. I was standing there singing, looking around, um, watching you, and just, just marveling at the family that God has brought together in this place. So grateful for what he's doing, and so grateful to be with you today. Well, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that uh, we've been in the midst of a series where we've been talking about the sort of culture that the gospel creates within the context of the church. As people begin to grasp and understand the gospel and begin to see its impact and its influence and its implications in their lives, it begins to create an undercurrent, a new perspective, a new worldview, a new outlook for his people, both individually and together. And so for the last nine weeks now, today is the ninth week of this series, we've been looking at those implications. And we started with just talking about what is the gospel. If we had to kind of boil it down to its essential parts, what actually is the gospel? And we talked about the idea that the gospel has set us free, free from the wrath of God, free from sin, free from the expectations of religion, free from self-condemnation, free from that nagging voice of criticism and doubt that lives within our minds, free from all of those things. And we talked about that for the first three weeks of the series, and then we looked at what is it that the gospel actually begins to work into us? What are we set free for? And we talked about the idea that God has called us into stillness to spend time with Him, to be with Him, to enjoy His company and His presence, that He's he's gifted His people, that He's given us unique spiritual gifts, every one of us, within the context of the body, for the benefit and the encouragement of the body. And then we talked about the gift that is community and relationship one with another. And then we asked this question. We basically said this, if we've been set free from something and if we've been set free to something, what are you going to do now that you don't have to do anything? And we started by talking about generosity and last week's service, and today we end this series by talking about evangelism. What does it actually mean to begin to share our faith? 
Once we begin to grasp and understand the gospel, the implications of God's grace, His love and His passionate pursuit of us, how then does that experience of God's grace in the gospel begin to turn itself outward as we interact with other people? What does it mean to share our faith as Christians? And even as I say that word evangelism, there's likely a picture or an expectation that comes to mind for you based on your own experience. And so our hope in this morning is in a sense to try to demystify our understanding of evangelism to the extent that it is difficult for us to understand. Because for some people, when they hear that word evangelism, they think of the very specific gift, the spiritual gift of evangelism. I think about people I've known in my own life who have, who have that gift in a very unique and powerful way, just a unique, winsome, seemingly effortless way of turning any conversation towards the gospel. And certainly, you've met people like that in your own life. They can just take the most mundane conversation and use it to to turn the conversation, to point people to Jesus, and simply but clearly articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you meet someone who has that gift, especially if you're naturally someone who's quiet or shy or introverted, it seems nearly impossible to you that God could call someone like you to be a witness. Others hear evangelism, and immediately they begin to think about evangelistic programs, maybe classes that teach Christians how to share their faith or, or walk people through a series of ideas or questions to help them see their need of salvation. And, and those trainings can be tremendously helpful in equipping God's people for that work. But some people, when they encounter classes or teachings or trainings or books like that, they walk away intimidated thinking, man, I'm not sure I'm smart enough or quick enough to be able to engage with anyone, much less somebody who might actually come at me in a combative way. And that's why today I wanted to look at this text, because what I love about this text is that that in it we see evidence that God often uses the least likely and seemingly least equipped converts to be powerful witnesses for the gospel. This text serves as a reminder that evangelism is as simple as sharing your experience with Jesus Christ with somebody else. Now, to give a little bit of context to this passage, this this text that uh, that we heard read for us this morning comes immediately on the heels of two of the most famous stories in the New Testament. We find those in John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. In John chapter 3, we're introduced to a man named Nicodemus. He was a Jewish man, an influential scholar and teacher, and he came to Jesus in the night seeking trying to understand what it was that Jesus was actually teaching, trying to understand ultimately what Jesus meant when he said that we must be born again. And now in John chapter 4, we've just been introduced, though it was in the text that wasn't read for us this morning, we're introduced to the woman at the well, this unnamed, uneducated, Samaritan woman, likely of poor reputation, The last thing in the world she was looking for was an encounter with a Jewish rabbi, and yet Jesus finds her. And Jesus' motivation, which ties these two disparate stories together, is found in one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. It's in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, and it says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So Jesus will go after the unrighteous and the reprehensible just as quickly as He'll go after the religious and the respectable because His perfect driving motivation is His own love for those who do not know His name. As I've heard Dave say on a number of occasions, there is only one road to the Father, but there is no road He won't go down to find someone. And God, in His patient and inviting and gentle grace, has called you and I to be a part of that pursuit. God does not need us for anything, but in His love, He invites us into this work. We get a view into this in John chapter 4. We didn't read the whole text for the sake of time, but I'll try to give you the Cliff's Notes version of it. Jesus comes into Samaria, 
He comes into this region that Jews at any cost would try to avoid. The Jews and the Samaritans had a long and storied history. They had an angry history, perhaps even on occasion violent history towards each other. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as mixed breeds, as part Jew and part Gentile, not worthy of full acceptance into the Jewish community. And the Samaritans viewed the Jews, among other things, as a bunch of people who were religious and stuck up and judgmental. And so there was all of this harsh interaction between these two groups. Jesus finds himself in a position having to travel through Samaria. So the disciples go off in search of lunch, trying to find food to bring back, and Jesus takes this opportunity to to get a drink of water. He goes down to the well. He sees a woman sitting there, and he approaches the Samaritan woman and asks her for a drink of water. It's in the heat of the day. This is the sixth hour of the day, according to the story, and this makes this whole scenario unusual because women who are most often responsible to go get the water for the family as part of the responsibilities of caring for their homes in this period would typically go down in the earliest portion of the day when it was still cool in the morning, but this woman goes at the heat of the day. And many scholars have speculated as to why that might be. Some have suggested that perhaps this woman was a woman of ill repute. That might be backed up by by, by what's about to follow here. But perhaps she was trying to avoid encounters with others within the community, those who would judge her, those who wouldn't like her. Maybe she was viewed as a homewrecker. There might be all kinds of reasons that were not actually given picture into into the story. But, But nonetheless, she's surprised in this moment when Jesus comes to her and asks for water because, as she points out, Jewish rabbis have no business with Samaritan women. She points out that Jesus is not only a man, but that he's a rabbi. She says, what do you have to do with me? And Jesus says, if you knew who it was that you were talking to, it would be you who is asking me for something to drink because I have living water that quenches every thirst. And the woman responds, well, that sounds great. I would love to have some of that water. I'd love to not have to come here day after day in the middle of the heat. And so they begin this conversation, and Jesus then says something interesting to the woman. He says, go and get your husband. And she responds to Jesus and says, I have no husband. And Jesus responds, You've spoken truly that you don't have, husband, have a husband because you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. And her response, which is funny, at least to my reading, is, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And so she asks him, she takes this opportunity, speaking to a prophet, clearly someone who has all kinds of wisdom and all kinds of insight, maybe this question that's been burning at her for years, she understands this is a man of God, and so she takes this opportunity to ask him a question. She says, should we worship God here, where our ancestors have told us to worship God, or do we need to go to Jerusalem in order to worship And Jesus' response is fascinating. He says, no, you misunderstand the whole purpose of the conversation because there's a time coming where where you worship doesn't actually matter because instead God is no longer waiting for you to find him on a mountain. He's actually the one seeking people like you, seeking for you to worship him in spirit and in truth. And this woman, perhaps beginning to realize whom it is she's speaking to, says, I know that a Messiah is coming, this one who's going to be called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I I who speak to you am he. And in that moment, this woman's life and trajectory are altered forever. She is rocked by what she's just heard. She runs off into the town full of joy and wonder and everybody who she knows and everybody who she sees and everybody who knew her and her background and her story, she's now yelling to them, come see this man who told me everything about me. Surely he must be the Christ. And it's about this time that the disciples make their way back from picking up their lunch. It apparently takes 12 men to go get 13 meals. They see Jesus talking with this woman and it says that they marveled. What in the world is Jesus doing talking to this woman? First of all, she's a woman. And at this time, it was a little suspect for a man, particularly a man of religious standing such as Jesus, to be speaking solely to a woman. Second, it seems that she's likely a woman of ill reputation. She has a bad reputation around the town. And third, she's a Samaritan. 
which is this people that the disciples by and large probably would have despised. And you can imagine what Jesus might be thinking in this moment. Well, while you were off getting sandwiches, this woman was talking to me and learning from me, and now she's telling everyone about me. And look at the response in the town in verse 30. The townspeople hear the invitation of the woman, and they go out to hear Jesus. Now, just think about that for a moment. This is a woman in a male-dominated culture, a woman who's unlearned of bad reputation, who didn't have great theology or academic credentials. She didn't have what what some others had with the evidence of perhaps a, a miraculous healing in her life, something that she could give physical evidence that something miraculous had happened. She just walks into town and says, I have to tell you about this man I just met. He's unlike anybody I've ever spoken to in my life. He knew things about me, and he has wisdom, and he knows God, and he's actually the Savior. He's God in the flesh. And you can imagine the odd looks and perhaps the questions that she would have received upon upon sharing this news with others, probably the same sorts of questions that somebody would get today if they said the very same thing. You can imagine somebody saying to her, well, why in the world, of all the people in this town that he could have spoken to, did he talk to you? Why wouldn't he go down to the temple, or why wouldn't he go to the sages and the wise men? Why would he have a conversation with you, of all people? Maybe she'd respond, I don't know, but he did. Well, prove to us that he's the Messiah. If you're going to make such an amazing claim about this man, give us some sort of evidence as to who he actually is. And maybe she said, well, I can't. All I can do is tell you what he's done for me. And maybe somebody else said, how can I believe in a Savior that believes what he believes? He's backwards, and he's antiquated, and he's bigoted. And perhaps her response was, all I can say is he knew all about my life and my sin. And he didn't condemn me or make me feel small or dismiss me. He was kind and honest and gracious and wise. He promised forgiveness and everlasting life to me. So where in the world did this woman find the confidence for this sort of witnessing? Well, let's first see where she didn't find it. Brother and sister, our confidence in witnessing is not in our own credibility. The only credibility we have to offer is that we are sinners who've been accepted by God by nothing that we have done. And that's exactly the claim that this woman had to make. There was no reason she should have had credibility in the eyes of those who heard her report. There was no reason anybody should have listened to her. She didn't have the proper credentials. She didn't have the proper education. She didn't have the proper background or lifestyle. She had done nothing at this point to prove her own seriousness or devotion or change of heart. She had just come from an encounter with Jesus and immediately in that moment said, everybody needs to meet him. See, the only credibility that you and I are able to muster is that there would be no reason for people like us to be honest about our shortcomings and our failures if there wasn't perfect acceptance and forgiveness to be found in Christ. Our confidence in witnessing is not in our right theology. Though we hope to be growing in our theology and our understanding of the word and trying to see the way that the Bible fits together and what we believe absolutely matters, our confidence in witnessing cannot be in our perfect theology. Nicodemus in chapter 3 proves that. He has all the education and all the degrees and all the academic accolades. He probably has fancy charts and leather-bound books and a podcast but he comes to Jesus and is lacking the childlike faith that is necessary to understand who this man is. And you can find that in John chapter 3, verse 10. But this woman lacked all of the education and training, but she believed and said, come and see the Messiah. Our confidence in witnessing is not 
in having all the answers. We get so tripped up because we're going to hear challenging questions or difficult people engaging us. But notice what happens in this text. We see in this passage that there are some questions that only Jesus is in a position to answer. This woman asked Jesus about where she ought to worship. This is likely an age-old controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, she references that in this text. She says, my fathers, our forefathers, say we're to worship here, but you and your people say we have to worship in Jerusalem. Why don't you settle the debate, Jesus? And you see how Jesus deftly and winsomely answers that response. He says the Father, in fact, is the one who seeks, and if you want to worship him, you have to worship him in spirit and in truth. And this woman, in her simple faith, does not try to answer all of the challenges to questions that she does not understand. She simply points people to the only one who can answer our deepest questions. Our confidence is in the fact that we have a Savior who does what we cannot do. Our hope, as we simply share and proclaim, is what we find in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So how, as we think about sharing our faith, how do we actually think about that? What motivates us, what drives us in it, how do we approach sharing our faith? Because if you're like me and if you're like most people, there's a desire that you have as a believer for other people to know the God that you know. We see loved ones and family and friends and coworkers and classmates and all kinds of people in our life, and we, we have an affection for them, a good and right and godly affection, wanting them to know the Savior that we would know, wanting them to know the freedom and the forgiveness and the love of the Father that we've experienced. And yet, for so many of us, sharing our faith is one of the most challenging things we can imagine. Well, I would suggest at least two pairs of ideas, and here's the first we approach evangelism with confidence and humility. We approach evangelism, sharing our faith, with confidence and humility. Now, where do I find that? Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, that's Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? I just want to stop there for a minute because in the wisdom of God, I think he certainly included this text to encourage us that if God could turn the world upside down with these idiots, he can even use people like us. They are flummoxed whenever Jesus talks about bread. Do a word search on it. It's hilarious. Every time it comes up, they don't know what he's talking about. And we have the benefit of reading Jesus' explanation verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food... It's to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So understand what Jesus is saying here. He's saying there's a tendency that we have to say, well, when I understand a little bit better, when I've learned a little bit more, when I'm a little bit more mature in my faith, when I grow more comfortable with public speaking or engaging strangers, that's the time when I'm going to take the time to share my faith with them. Or we'll say things like, well, I'm not going to approach other people, but if somebody asks me if I'm a Christian, then I'll take the opportunity. But Jesus says, don't look at the fields, don't look at the world, don't look at the lost folks around you and think eventually there will be a time to harvest. He says, no, the fields are ready to be harvested now. Today is the day of salvation. 
Well, why should that make me confident in witnessing? Are you trying to guilt me? That I haven't done enough and now I need to do more and today is the day, so go and do this thing that seems impossible. Are you trying to motivate me out of guilt? No. We find the confidence in what he says beginning in verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. The reason, brother and sister, that we can be confident in sharing the gospel with others is that, is that the results are not in our hands. I'm going to repeat that. The reason we can be confident in sharing the gospel with others is that the results are not in our hands, but the rewards are. What do I mean by that? God has asked you to be faithful in sharing the gospel. He has asked you to be faithful in sharing your faith, your experience, as simple as saying, would you come meet the man that I just met who changed everything for me? Can I just tell you about Jesus and what he's done in my life? Can I just share with you who this Jesus is? He has asked you to be faithful in sharing that, in talking to the lost, in loving those who are potentially hard to love, in proclaiming salvation to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, but the results, make no mistake about it, are in his hands. Notice what he says. You're gathering fruit for eternal life. He's saying there is a spiritual harvest in which you get to rejoice. You get to be a part of the process of seeing somebody who was lost returned home. Someone who was dead in sins received life eternal. Someone who did not know Jesus come to know their maker and their savior. You get to be a part of that process. You get the reward, the benefit, the spiritual fruit of being used by God. But notice how it starts. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. God, the Holy Spirit, is preparing the hearts of hearers through circumstances and conversations and things people read and see and hear through the drips and drabs of life that they happen to pick up where it stirs up in them a spiritual curiosity. Do you understand that all of that is the work of the Spirit? that he is preparing hearts and minds. He is opening ears to hear. And so we can be confident in witnessing because the results do not depend upon us. It is not your job to change someone's heart or to change someone's mind. You can't do it. And when we begin to understand that, there is tremendous freedom in the call that we have to witness because all we have to do is share what God's done in our life. That's it. And that confidence in the work of Jesus Christ leads to a humility in us. I pull this from, from, from the book of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and here's what he says. Who then is Apollos? Who even am I? We are simply servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building." See, Paul's confidence in Christ leads to a humility in himself. God is the one doing the work of convicting hearts and changing minds, of opening ears to hear and eyes to see, of bringing the dead to life. Your job is to be like the Samaritan woman. Come see this man who told me what I needed to know. Come see this Jesus who is the Messiah. So first, we approach evangelism with confidence and humility, but second, we approach evangelism with truth and grace. This is where things get a little bit harder for some people, for all of us, if probably if we're honest. Tr 
truth. Think for a moment about what the gospel both explicitly and implicitly communicates. The gospel includes the truth that there is one true creator God, preexistent, eternal, and that that God has a rightful claim on all of his creation and is worthy of all of our love and our worship. It, It tells us that our thoughts, our actions, our motivations are so selfish and wicked at their root, so devoid of the holiness and righteousness of God that we deserve nothing short of an eternity in hell separated from God for a rebellion against him. The gospel tells us that Jesus, who is God, had to die on the cross to pay for our sins and to restore us to life and fellowship with God, that Jesus is, in fact, the only way to God. That eternal life cannot be found through Muhammad or Buddha or Krishna. That it can't be found in any sort of philosophy or religion that it can't be found through social activism or environmentalism or anything else into which we might try to pour ourselves for our perceived betterment of mankind. And if that's not enough, the Bible's teaching on topics as far-ranging as sexuality and marriage and creation and money stand in stark contrast to the values of the culture around us. By virtue of our adherence to biblical truth, our message is offensive. And you cannot remove the offense of the gospel without losing the gospel itself. Because when you try to make the gospel more palatable by whitewashing our need or by softening the holiness of God, you remove the necessity of the gospel altogether. If we are not desperately in need, why did Jesus even need to come? If God's holiness isn't a real and powerful thing, why should I fear any sort of retribution for a life lived in rebellion to God? So we have to ask ourselves consistently, what is actually loving as we have gospel conversations with other people? Because while it might seem initially more loving to make the gospel more palatable and less offensive, if we obscure someone's understanding of their need of salvation or minimize the sacrifice of Jesus that provides their salvation, that is the most unloving thing we can do. And that's why grace then is so important, both grace explicitly in the message that we deliver as well as grace in the way that we deliver it. So here's how Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. See, the message of the gospel is offensive enough. Let's not add to the offense So understand there will always be ways in which we as Christians are unusual. And if you want a picture of that, all you got to do is read 1 Peter chapters 2 through 4 to see how unusual we are. But Christians are not unusual for the mere sake of being unusual. We are unusual because we are submitting ourselves to what God has called us to do. And we ought to strive to be people who are winsome, approachable, and kind. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. So we approach evangelism with confidence and humility. We approach it with truth and grace. I want to begin to close by leaving you with two fears and two obstacles and a charge. I'll try to make it quick, no promises. 
There's two fears and these two obstacles are things that I picked up from a man named Joe Thorne. He's a pastor at a church in Illinois. I found his, his uh, conversation around this very helpful, but he points out two fears and two obstacles. And first he says, for most Christians, one of the biggest hindrances to our ability to evangelize is fear of rejection. None of us like to be rejected. It is one of our greatest fears. And that's not just a cultural thing. It is the way that we are wired. We, are, we, we tend to live in fear of rejection. We don't like to be turned away. But understand that the presentation of the gospel itself is what God uses to call people to himself. And inevitably what that means is that in the sharing and the proclamation of the gospel, there are some who will respond with rejection. And the call for us as we think about this and go, man, I don't want people to not like me or avoid me or think poorly of me or think I'm an idiot or antiquated or bigoted or reject me on the face of it because of my beliefs. Our tendency then is to give in to that pressure. And the call that we have and the invitation that we have is to remember that you can actually trust God with what he's going to do. to find your meaning, your value, your affirmation in him and not other people. This is exactly what Jesus instructs the 72 followers to do when he sends them out to preach. You can find this in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 16, and here's what he says to those 72 followers. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. In other words, Jesus' promise is this, to the the extent that you are rejected when you're sharing your faith and to the extent that people think you're stupid or antiquated or whatever else they might throw at you, to the extent that you are rejected, they are not rejecting you, they are rejecting Jesus. And there is solace in the realization that we are going to be rejected the very same way that Jesus was and is. And remember, too, by the way, that even in the moment of rejection, rejection itself may not be final. I've shared the story before about how my parents became Christians. I won't share the whole story again, but the long story short of it is that they had a neighbor lady who had witnessed to them and invited them to church and had had conversations with them and and would talk to them. And this had happened over the course of months, potentially even years. My memory's a little fuzzy on that. But this neighbor lady was just very faithful in witnessing to and inviting my parents to church. And for years, my parents just said, no, 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 not interested. To the point where my father actually at one point came to my mother and said, listen, we either have to go to this lady's church or we have to move. We can't keep doing this thing, right? But, But ultimately, that rejection turned into response. And when we view rejection as being final, we presume that we know the hearts of people and you may just be somebody who is planting the seed or watering the seed in someone's life. But when the fear of rejection keeps us from sharing, it's an indication that our reputation has become more important to us than the gospel. Our priorities have become misaligned. For some, it's not a fear of rejection, but instead, number two, it's a fear of failure. How can I share the gospel when people know that I'm not perfect? Maybe people knew you and the way you lived before Jesus. And so you just feel as if you have no credibility in their eyes. Or maybe, and just as likely, they've seen you fail as a Christian. They witnessed you that time that you lost your temper. They witnessed you at various stages of your life. But again, look at the life of the Samaritan woman in this moment. These people knew her story. They knew her background. They knew her failures. And God used her in a real and powerful way to draw others to himself. So here's the advice. First, remember the hope that you're sharing is not that you used to be really bad and now you're really good. The hope that you're sharing is that you have a God who loved you infinitely when you were really bad and continues to love you when you give in to sin now. People do not need a perfect messenger. They need a perfect savior. So then people will say with a fear of failure, well, what if I say the wrong thing? And the advice that we have is be praying 
and advance. Be praying for opportunities. Be praying for wisdom. I can tell you, I could tell you dozens of stories about times where I was in conversations with people where I was outmatched in terms of intellectual ability or life experience or maybe where someone had a combative spirit in that conversation and in my mind I didn't know what to say and I would just stop for a moment and pray, God, you know what this person needs and I don't. I don't have an answer to that question they just posed. I don't have a response to that argument they just made. And so please, God, give me things that would be helpful and encouraging for them. And along those lines, feel free to admit what you don't know. We get ourselves in a lot of trouble when we think that we need to be the expert on everything. It can paralyze us from witnessing at all. It can lead us to say things that we don't know are actually true. And there's a lot of freedom in being able to say to someone, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Let me do some checking and get back to you. Or even, I don't know the answer to that question. Why don't we find a time to look at the Bible around that topic together? To trust God for the results, it's his word that does not return void. The two obstacles. First, the obstacle of time. That's a hard one for us. My life is so busy, I don't have time. You don't know what my schedule's like, you don't know what my family's like. I don't have time to evangelize, I don't have time to witness, I don't have time to share my faith with people, or I don't have enough time to walk someone through the whole story of the Bible, so I'm not even gonna bother getting into it. Well, those are two different problems. The first is a lack of space in your life. It's a, it's a revelation that you have constructed your life in such a manner that you don't have time to do the thing that God has called you and enabled you to do. And so it requires actually giving a a cold-eyed look at your calendar and at your life to say, what else needs to go? But the second, that idea that I don't have the time to get into all of the implications of of the gospel, dismisses the idea that little conversations and snippets can be used in people's life to lead them to the gospel. So let me just share this quick story. Years ago, I was working at a landscaping company. I was working with uh, all kinds of guys who knew I was a Christian, and one particular guy that I was working with, we developed a friendship. I'd share kind of what was going on in my life, what I'd been learning. I would take the opportunity to encourage him as best I could. I would tell him about what God was teaching me, and he would ask questions, and he'd ask hard questions, and he'd ask questions that I didn't know the answer to. But little by little, as days and weeks and months went on, we began to have more and more conversations, most of them not more than 15 minutes at a time. It'd be five minutes in the morning as we were getting ready to head out on our various assignments and part ways for the whole day, or 10 minutes in the evening as we both arrived back at the shop. But over time, God used those snippets and moments of conversation He used them in conjunction with other conversations this man was having in his life that I knew nothing about to call him to himself. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God knows the opportunities that you have and he gives you those moments to share. Be faithful and trust him with the results. The last obstacle is that of opportunity. The obstacle of opportunity. And here's what that looks like. I don't know any non-Christians. And for some of you, you can't imagine being in circles or living lives where you're not consistently and constantly encountering non-Christians in your life. But for some of you, depending on maybe what your work situation is or the stage of life that you're in, you may look around and go, you know what? Everyone around me already knows Jesus. So how am I actually going to begin to find these inroads? So what does it look like for you to join a bowling league or a softball league or do a trivia night or a book club or, I don't know, have a neighbor over? You know, that neighbor that you avoid because you met him eight years ago when you first moved in and you, you heard their name then and now you don't remember it and so you two have been doing the awkward wave as you take your trash out on Monday evenings. What does it look like to actually reintroduce yourself to someone to make the apology that you forgot their name and invite them over for a cookout? What does it look like to do simple things, to engage those who are around you who do not know Jesus, to push through the awkward? Here's one of our favorite ones. What does it look like to ask your waiter or your waitress what you can be praying for? 
This is something that Dave introduced me to. Somebody introduced Dave to it. I'm sure Christians have been doing it for thousands of years, and we think it's a brand new development. But it's an amazing thing when your waiter or waitress brings your food to the table and you say, hey, right before we're going to eat, um, we're going to pray. What can we be praying for you about? And if they give you that startled look, you can just say, you know, like, what's been going well? What's been hard for you? Is there things someone we can pray about? I can't tell you the number of times I've been able to do that. And I can tell you that there has been one occasion where somebody said, I have nothing you can pray for. And in that case, we just prayed going, God, you know there's something going on in her life that we have no clue about doing her what you need to do. But the avenues for conversation and the vulnerability that people will show in those moments is startling. Why? Because most people have never experienced anything like that. They've never had anybody in their life who cared for them or loved them enough to, to ask them how things have been going and what they could be praying for. You'll be amazed at what God can do. Let me end with this charge. Brothers and sisters, there is an opportunity that is in front of us culturally. We are living at a time when the veil of cultural Christianity has been removed. It used to be that it was advantageous to be a Christian, to be a part of a, of a church community. I mean, there were points in our American history where people couldn't get loans if they didn't belong to churches because it was a demonstration of your credibility as an individual. It was advantageous of you to be plugged into a church community that no longer exists. And for far too long, churches have been satisfied with a moralistic cultural relevance. The church had functionally abandoned the biblical paradigm of two roads, the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to life. That biblical ideal of what are you going to do when faced with the question, are you going to serve yourself or are you going to serve God? Life or death has been whitewashed. And the operative paradigm that the church has been functioning in is that it's enough for the church to create nice, well-behaved citizens who give lip service to the Christian God. And in a real sense, there is benefit in that cultural Christianity fading away. Primarily because the Bible knows nothing of it. It knows nothing of a nominal Christianity where people claim vague faith in a God that they neither know nor serve. We are moving headlong into a post-Christian culture. Biblical literacy continues to decline. More and, people have, more and more people have no idea what Christianity is about or who Jesus is. Many people may not know a Christian in their life. I know that's hard for some of us to realize, but it happens all the time. No familiarity with what the Bible teaches. But in that gap, there is an openness. There is an openness to the spiritual there's a growing realization that as we become further and further anchored from anything that resembles Christianity, there's an increasing awareness that humanity is built for relationship and connectedness. There's a growing realization that material gain is incapable of producing the sort of inner peace and joy that people long for. And so people search and long and desperately desire community. And so they find it in their sexual orientation or their gender identity. They find it in their politics or their activism. They find it in their own individual subcultures. And what we know unequivocally is what the Samaritan woman knew, that Jesus alone can meet those deepest needs. The call that lies before us is to take that message of hope and joy and love and salvation to people who do not know it. Do you understand that God has put you where you are on purpose? That your neighbors and your coworkers and your clients and your friends and your baristas and your classmates at school with whom you interact are, are not just people, they are precious souls desperately need the life-giving encounter of Christ. 
So each week throughout this series, we've tried to leave you with something practical to help you consider how you can put into practice the things that we're learning. And this week, we've got copies of, available of a tract called Two Ways to Live. Now, just explain a little bit about what this is, depending on your experience or your history. Um, this is not something that's purely intended just to be distributed freely, though certainly it, it may end up being helpful that way. But really, the reason we want to give this to you today is because what Two Ways to Live defines is really the conversation that we just had, namely that there is a narrow road and a broad road that we were created for something bigger than ourselves, that God created us and constructed us and designed us and gave us purpose and meaning and extended salvation to us. It's a bullet point outline of the gospel that we just talked about. And what it's really intended to do is to, give, is to help you think through your own understanding of the gospel, to prepare you to be able to share this gospel with others. And so while you certainly could just distribute it to people, our hope is that you'll actually take the time to read through it and to think about it and to ponder it and what it says so that you can have a helpful framework for how to witness and share your faith with other people or to perhaps walk with somebody else through this. Brothers and sisters, it is a simple call that we've been given and yet it's one that's extremely hard because it goes against everything that our flesh naturally feeds on but we have been invited into an eternal, purposeful mission that bears eternal spiritual fruit so that at the day of glorification, we can stand with those who planted the seed and watered the seed and say, can you believe that God used us? How amazing and incredible is he? So we're going to end this morning as we've ended each morning for the last nine weeks. We're going to pray and then we're going to take some time for silence to be still with the Lord. To allow him to speak through his word, through his spirit, to enjoy his presence. And then we'll respond and worship together. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your love and your pursuit of us. I thank you that you have not only called us into your family, but that you have appointed our lives from beginning to end, the places we live and the times in which we live, God, are ordained by you according to your word. And God, that you've done that so that those who are searching, grasping about in the dark, looking for something, will find you. And upon finding you, realize that you were never far away. God, would we take up the call to be those who simply and clearly proclaim your gospel, what it is that you've done in our lives. And God, we confess that we don't witness the way that we ought, that we shrink back, that we operate out of fear, that we give in to the momentary impulses and the cries of urgency in our life that are not actually urgent. But I pray, God, that you would raise up among us a group of evangelists, that we've all been given this call and this opportunity, and that we would delight in the work that you've given us to do, knowing that we can trust you fully for the results of it. God, we pray these things, trusting you this morning, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.